Good morning. I am delighted to continue our study in 1 John with you all. If you're able, open up your Bibles to 1 John to chapter 5. Last time we were in 1 John together, it was Reformation Day. And if you recall, we were uh, considering one verse then. It was the verse that precedes verse 13 in John chapter 5. And the outline for that sermon was that we were chosen for Christ, saved in Christ, and judged by Christ. We recognize that there were only two paths that one can follow in this life, that one can follow Jesus Christ, who is the wisdom of God, be scorned by the world, but find everlasting favor in his sight, or one can follow the world that rejects the wisdom of God, be accepted by the world, but find everlasting contempt in the sight of the world. And so we are going to be considering what flows from that one verse this morning. And this is the topic, it's assurance in this life and the life to come. I find it interesting that 1 John, often when it is preached in congregations, read by members in congregations, it is often a hindrance to assurance. Many find the words in 1 John challenging and searching, putting upon them a weight that makes them question their salvation. This morning we're going to read the purpose statement of the Apostle John for writing this epistle. And this is the thesis, that God is concerned with our assurance. And his word is sufficient to grant it. And today's outline, like the last, is going to be three in part. Number one, confidence in him. Part two, confidence before him. And lastly, confidence by him. Confidence in him, confidence before him, and confidence by him. With your Eyes on verse 13 of John, 1 John chapter 5. Read with me through verse 15. This is the word of the Lord. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before him, that... If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. Let us pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we ask for your help now by your spirit that we would see Christ in these pages. 
that we would see Christ in this text, that we would hear Christ in this sermon, that we would have confidence in him, know of our confidence before him, all to the praise of our confidence by him. Father, we ask that you would help us now as we open your word. Let us worship you now in spirit and in truth. And we ask this, all these things in Christ's name. And we all say, Amen. Amen. Well, there's a game that is fun to play in my house. We talked about uh, in previous messages the game of closing your eyes and seeing if you don't knock into anything after turning in circles. <laughs> but this time, uh, I want to talk to you about a game that my kids play with my record player, where they go and find their favorite record, which is usually determined by the artwork on the outside of the jacket. And they put it on the turntable, and I have one of those old receivers that you can press a button to turn the speakers on and off while the record keeps playing, in case you wanted to know how to play musical chairs with a vinyl record. That's how you do it. But we don't play musical chairs. We play musical pillows. And musical pillows is the same game as musical chairs, except with pillows instead of chairs. Much easier to get them in a circle in the living room. And as we know, uh, this game, everyone's included in the beginning. And one by one, as Papa presses the speaker button and the music goes off, they all sit down and one pillow is taken away. And one child is taken away. <laughs> until there is one child left, which usually results in mass confusion. <laughs> all that being said, why do I talk about musical pillows this morning? Because oftentimes we view in our flesh, our assurance like musical pillows. We view our assurance as in one day I'm in, one day I'm out. How did I do today? How did I do yesterday? How have I done this week? How have I done this year? But our assurance is not like musical pillows where we're playing a game with God. And as we're going to uh, learn in this passage, neither is our prayer life a game. But we're apt to look at them that way. We're apt to look at our salvation as a game or our assurance as a game or our prayer life as a game. We might not put it that way, but that's how we proceed. Questioning and doubting. Am I going to be the last one left when the pillows are all taken away or when there's one pillow left? That is not the confidence that we have by God through his word in the face of of Jesus Christ. And so what I want to begin with to this morning is our confidence in him, that we have confidence in our salvation. And because we have confidence in our salvation, we have confidence or we should have confidence in our assurance. God is concerned with our assurance. And again, his word is sufficient to grant that. We don't need anything other than his word and the spirit working along with it to give us that assurance and so with that in mind i want to look at verse 13 as we begin verse 13 this is our confidence in him john says this these things i have written to you who believe in the name of the son of god so that you may know that you have eternal life this is a purpose statement that John is giving us for why he wrote this epistle. What was his motive? What was his desire? 
What did he want to see? He wanted to see those who were in his care and all those who would read this epistle to have assurance of their salvation. And we know that all scripture is God-breathed. God wrote this so that we would have assurance. These things I have written to you. Let's look first at some linguistic observations. First, these things I have written. Literally, this means these things I wrote. Well, what are these things? It's everything that has preceded this part of the text. First John 1 John 1.1 all the way through 1 John 5.12 is what these things are. These things I have written to you. These things I wrote. But secondly, he says, to you who believe. There is an evangelistic uh, perspective you can have when you read any portion of Scripture. God is calling those who are lost, those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, by and through His Word. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. But John is saying that he has written these things that precede this particular verse, all of John's epistle, to those who believe. This is a letter to the faithful. This is a letter to those in the church. And when he says, you who believe, what he is really saying is, those of you who are believing. This word, who believe, is a present active participle, which means that this believing is ongoing. And it's present tense. It doesn't stop. The believing ones. This believing is something that continues. And this is what I would say to those who have read, read 1 John or have...
Jesus Christ and what he has done so that they would have strength and assurance. And if there's one thing that I want you to take away from this sermon is that when you are doubtful, when you are lacking assurance, what you ought to do, look to the Son of God. John is telling us to do the same thing by reminding them and us today of the free gift of eternal life, which was purchased for them by Jesus Christ. Not their own works. This was purchased by the work of Christ. It belongs to you who believe in the Son of God. This purpose statement in John's epistle is reminiscent of the purpose statement that he had at the end of his gospel, or towards the end of his gospel. John has said something very similar, and this is interesting because there are those in the academy who would even contend that it was the Apostle John who wrote this epistle, but consider John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31 from his gospel. We know this verse well, or these verses well. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Purpose statement. John's Gospel. But these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And the purpose statement of this epistle is that these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. I recall in the Gospels when Jesus is speaking to those who have rejected him, and he would say things like, at least believe in the signs that I do, in the miracles that flow from my hand. If you don't believe my words, at least believe the works. And John is saying at the end of his gospel that there was such a superabundance of these works done by our Lord. Works that are not contained in the gospels. In fact, he would go on to say that if they were recorded, there would not be room in all the books of the world. Yes, there is an evangelistic outreach happening through the miracles, through the scriptures. But this is written to those who believe. But what would it what would be more convincing to you in those times that you lack assurance? That you truly are in Christ if you believe in his name those moments of doubt that come forward? What would be something that would be more impressive to you? What would be something that would be more substantial proof? I think oftentimes we consider as faithful believers in the Lord who works miracles that if I saw a miracle, I would surely believe. What if you were praying in your weakness and your doubt. And all of a sudden, the heavens opened up and light shone down and you heard a voice. And it said, brother. Or it said, sister. 
I have saved you. You are eternally mine. Or if a voice came from heaven and said, I have chosen you, and they say your name before the foundation of the world, do not fear. I think most of us would say if that happened, we'd probably say, I will never have a lack of assurance again. I can live the rest of my days knowing that I am Him. I heard the voice of God. I saw a shining light. Turn with me to 2 Peter, if you're able. We've considered this verse before, this, these verses. 2 Peter, chapter 1. The Apostle Peter... <coughs> very much like the Apostle John in the beginning of this epistle, is talking about being an eyewitness of Christ. And supping with Him. Praying with Him. Having that intimate human touch with Christ. Listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Eyewitnesses of his majesty. For we received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter's remembering that sight of the transfiguration when he saw this miraculous event. We would say right there, oh, that's the evidence that would take away my lack of assurance forever. If I heard that kind of voice, saw that kind of sight, listen to what Peter says in the next verse. So, we have the prophetic word made more sure. What's Peter saying? Peter is saying that the scriptures are a greater evidence than hearing the voice of God. A greater evidence than seeing the miracles. We have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the, dawn, the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. And he goes on to talk about Scripture. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. We talked about in Pastor, Sir, uh, Pastor Perkins' sermon on Sola Scriptura on Reformation Day, that if you want to hear the Word of God audibly, then read the Bible out loud. That's not just some little cute quip, uh, some little pithy statement that sounds, sounds nice, but actually isn't true. If, you're, if you would be impressed by hearing the audible voice of God, and that would take your assurance away forever, Brothers and sisters, read your Bible out loud. It's true. And this brings us to that point that God is concerned with our assurance. In 
has given us the scripture like we have before us this morning for that very end. God has given us all we need to have assurance in this life and the life to come. And God's grace is sufficient. God's grace is sufficient. We know that. We remember the Apostle Paul when he's talking about the thorn in his flesh. Asking the Lord three times, take it away from me. We even had a discussion on this trip what that thorn in the flesh was. This trip that we took as brothers in Christ, that God was pleased to give us time to continue to ponder his word. What was that thorn in the flesh? Well, at the end of the day, we came to the conclusion we don't know exactly what that thorn in the flesh was that Paul was asking to be taken away from him through prayer. But we do know what the Lord said. My grace is sufficient for you. And his grace is sufficient to give us assurance of our salvation. But how does he do it? Again, the Apostle Peter, I think, and the Apostle John together are helping us understand that it's through his word. God's grace is sufficient to give us assurance of salvation by and through his word. And it's not just through his word, it's the Holy Spirit that dwells in us as believers, that uses the word to give us assurance. The Holy Spirit is our ever-present help, our sufficient helper. So God the Spirit uses the word that is sufficient to give us assurance. I hope this is giving, beginning to give you confidence and when you have doubt, when you have a lack of assurance of salvation, what you ought to do. You ought to go to God's word, that word which he has given us to supply assurance through the work of the Spirit. That's our confidence in him. Our confidence in Christ who is the word made flesh and the prophetic utterances which were made more sure than the miracles that were seen even by the Apostle Peter and the Apostle John who was also there on that mountain, by the way. That's our confidence in him. But now I want to talk about our confidence before him because I believe that is what John is going to next. Our confidence before him beginning of verse 14, where John says, this is the confidence which we have before him. Linguistic observation. This is the confidence. In other words, this word confidence means boldness. And we've talked about how we have the right given to us as sons and daughters to enter into God's presence with boldness because Christ has torn the curtain that separated us from the presence of God. Going back to all those Old Testament illustrations of the high priest, one high priest, one time a year, who could go into that special presence of the Lord. The people were barred from doing that. Only he was able to do that. And on that cross, when Jesus said it was finished, and the curtain in the temple tore in two from top to bottom, Signaling, signifying that the way was now open for everyone who puts their faith in Christ to come before the throne of God with boldness. This is that boldness 
that John is talking about here when he says, this is the confidence which we, the believing ones, which we have before him. So that's the confidence. It's a bold confidence, a boldness. But it's also a boldness that we have before him. And that before him is signaling it's in his presence. In his presence. In the last sermon in 1 John, talking about being saved in Christ and that we would be judged by Christ. We made a very terrifying observation about Christ being the one who we will all stand before at the judgment and how unbelievers, those who are not in Christ, those who have not put their faith in the Son of God, how they will react in the presence of God. They don't run into God's presence with boldness, like a little child running to their parents. Remember Revelation chapter 6, verses 16 through 17, where the Apostle John says about this group, And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. That is the opposite of what John is saying we have as believers. A terrifying opposite. No. Our confidence, our boldness, is a boldness and a confidence that we have in his presence. And John has already said this in this epistle. Do you recall 1 John chapter 2.28, where John encourages us? Now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, you will not say, Oh, let the mountains and the rocks fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne. But rather, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame. As I was studying this passage, I was reminded of an endearing uh, application from the Gospel of Mark, and it's it's not a one-for-one, one. it's not the same doctrine per se, but I think it's a, it's a picture that we can take comfort from. In Mark chapter 9, verses 36, 36 through 37, in the context of the disciples asking Jesus, who is the who will be the greatest in heaven, and can a mother of the, one of the disciples saying, can my one son sit at your right and my one son sit at your left? What a request of a mother to their child, or to, their, to her children. Jesus did this, taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms. That is the verse that I thought of. Taking this child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not anyone who whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. This action of taking this little child in his arms, that endearing touch of our Savior to a child. Again, 
not looking at the doctrine per se of Mark 9, but the application that that is the relationship that we have as little children to God. What is the opposite of saying, fall, calling to the mountains and the rocks to fall on us and hide us from God? It's God taking us into his arms like a little child. That is how we are received by God in Christ. This type of confidence can only exist among those who are children of God. It exists in no other. You must be a child of God to be received by God this way. And our fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, includes a childlike trust. John has called those faithful in his congregation, those whom he has written this epistle to, over and over and over again, little children. We talked about how he is like a spiritual father over them, and they are his children. We talked about how Paul would call Timothy his child in the faith. But one thing that is true is that all of us cry to God who are in Christ as children. Abba, Father. And this confidence which we have before God is because of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. If it were not for the person and the work of Jesus Christ, if it were not for the gospel, none of us could cry unto God, Abba, Father. All of us would be saying to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from him who sits on the throne. That is our confidence that we have as believers before him, that he looks at us, he treats us in Christ as righteous as blameless. And so lastly, this leads to our confidence by him. Our confidence by him. This is what the Apostle John says. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. This is now turning the eye to prayer. Not only are we credited with Christ's righteousness, not only do we have boldness to come before God, to be in his presence with the boldness that is in Christ, but we have confidence to make requests unto God as a loving Father. Three points I want to observe from this. First, we submit our prayers and desires to the all-benevolent, loving Father. And what I mean by that, by submitting our prayers, is that we recognize at the end and at the beginning of our prayer that He knows what is best for us. The Apostle Matthew said in his Gospel, in chapter 7, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, 
finds, and to him who knocks, it will be opened. Those are the words that were recorded by the Apostle Matthew, spoken by our Lord. What do you think is one word that is to be thought of if Jesus says that about prayer? What do you think about prayer? That it's a game? That it's attributed, as we've said before, like a, a slot machine where you're moving God, that you're changing His will? Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened unto you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. If you ask me what's one word that comes to mind concerning prayer, from those words of our Lord, it's this. Confidence. Confidence. Jesus goes on, Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask Him? Yes, we submit our prayers and desires to the all-benevolent, loving Father that knows what is best for His children. Secondly, we submit our confessions to an all-compassionate, loving Father. John said it this way so uh, in this epistle previously. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This confess our sins is oftentimes through prayer. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Oh, how we submit our confessions of sin to an all-compassionate, loving Father. As we continue in 1 John, he's going to make a distinction concerning prayer and what we ought and not ought to pray for. And lastly, we submit our needs to an all-knowing, loving We've said this many times before, Matthew 6, verse 8. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This is the confidence that we have by Him. And the Apostle John brings us to prayer to give us assurance. Again, we're often apt to think about our prayer life as being evidence of our lack of assurance. How often we pray for things and don't get what we asked for. Is God not hearing me? Did I not pray enough? Why didn't God give me what I want? But John is saying, no, little ones, your prayer life should be evidence that you're in Christ and you have assurance from that prayer life. One theologian put it this way, our prayers are not so that our wills would be done on earth, but that God's will would be done on earth. And we pray it that way in the Lord's Prayer as He taught us to pray. 
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your will be done. Not mine. On earth as it is in heaven. Even our Lord, as he's praying in the garden before the cross, asks for the cup to pass from him. And he says, nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. Prayer is to conform our desires to God's desires, not the other way around, not to conform God's desires to our desires. And that's a good thing. That's an understatement, actually. That's a blessing. Jesus gives us confidence again in John's Gospel. John 14. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And again, our fleshly reaction to that is, that's not true. I've asked many things and ended the prayer with, in Christ's name. And it didn't, I didn't get it. That's thinking in the flesh. James, in his short epistle, says in chapter 4, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain. Me, me, me. So you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. Again, it's a blessing that we don't get what we ask for all the time because, brothers and sisters, we don't always ask for what is best for us. Even if we don't understand why it wouldn't be best for us, God knows what is ultimately best for us. And he answers our prayers according to his will. So what does this lead us to? Praying in faith. And praying in faith is recognizing that we worship a God who does not change. We don't worship a God who's playing a game with us in our prayer life. We worship a God who has already told us, all things work together for good to those who love Him. We need to pray according to His will. What's His will? Your sanctification. We need to pray in humility. Well, I, was, I was encouraged very recently of a brother who shared of prayers that he has made and yet said, I give it to the Lord. I'm trusting in the Lord. I'm not burdened that these prayers have not been answered. That's the confidence that is afforded to us. That when we, when we pray in faith, that is the assurance that we have. That God has heard that prayer. It's not as if that prayer wasn't answered because God didn't hear it. It's that God has a plan that is far better than ours. And we need to trust that as little children. In conclusion, I want to consider Psalm 89. Psalm 89 is a psalm that is 
one that is very rich and deep as it concerns hermeneutics and studying. We've talked about in messages past how there's a conversation that's happening in the Old Testament, certainly, between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. We see it in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, and I think we see it again in Psalm 89 in rich contrast. We see it in symbolic language, such as in Ezekiel, when a prophecy is uttered about King David, and we say that that is actually pointing to Jesus, the greater son of David. And I believe in Psalm 89, starting in verse 35, we have all of these things taking place. And I think it affords to us the motivation for John writing what he wrote in verses 13 through 15. Psalm 89, verses 35 through 37, David writes thus, Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. Now again, who's speaking? I believe it is God who's speaking in that verse. David's not speaking in the third person. And when he says, I will not lie to David, I believe he's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater son of David, the greater shepherd of God's people. Listen to what he says in verse, after verse 35, saying, Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. These are the children of Messiah. We've talked about the children of Jesus, his offspring, those who are in him. His descendants shall endure forever. Forever. Do you want confidence that if you are in Christ, you shall endure forever as his descendant and his throne as the sun before me? Verse 37, it shall be established forever like the moon and the witness in the sky is faithful. And then it says, Selah. And you should pause for a moment and meditate on that. This is confidence. Here's a good illustration. How many of us went to bed last night wondering if there would be a sun in the sky when we woke up? How many of us lay in our beds last night, assuming we weren't sleeping outside, and wondered, I wonder if the moon is still in the sky? We all laid our heads on our pillows last night knowing that the moon was in the sky, and we all arose in the morning or I should say, maybe before the sun rose, knowing that the sun would rise, that there would still be a sun in the sky. And that is the type of confidence that we should have in our salvation. How sure are you that you're a Christian? As sure as I went to bed last night, knowing that the moon was in the sky. As sure as I went to bed last night, knowing that in the morning, the sun would rise. And so, we see this idea brought forward to Revelation chapter 1 about the Lord Jesus Christ. The same John who wrote this epistle is the same John who wrote in the book of Revelation the recording of the words of Christ. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who was who is to come and from the seven spirits who, who are before his throne. Here it is. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful 
witness. The firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. This is the words of G.K. Beale on his commentary and relations. John's greeting comes from Jesus Christ, who is described as the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Listen to this. John is quoting Psalm 89, the same psalm we just looked at, where all three phrases are used. The psalm speaks of the king who will rule over his enemies and whose seed, children, you believers, who will sit on his throne forever. John thinks of Jesus as the seed of David, whose resurrection has resulted in the establishment of his eternal kingdom. And as a result of reflecting on Christ's fulfillment of Psalm 89, at the end of this verse, John breaks out into an exclamatory, Christological doxology, where the scripture says about us, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. That is the confidence that we have before him. That is what should fuel our assurance, especially when we lack assurance of salvation. We sang it this morning. What should you do when you lack assurance? When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see him there who made an end to all my sin. That is John's doxological praise at the end of Jesus' greeting in the book of Revelation in light of Psalm 89. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word this morning. We thank you that you are concerned with our assurance of salvation and that your word is sufficient to grant it. We thank you for Jesus Christ the faithful witness, as faithful as the moon in the sky and the sun, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Oh Lord, forgive us for how often we have lacked assurance for what you have done by and through your Son, Jesus Christ, for your glory and our eternal good. Let us rejoice as we celebrate the supper this morning in light of that work of your Son. It's in his precious name, Jesus Christ.